0: Hello and welcome to Roundhouse Crosstalk, a podcast hosted by the California State Railroad Museum. In this week's episode, we interview author and Bancroft Award winner Mia Bay about her new book, Traveling Black, a story of race and resistance. We discuss the long history of travel discrimination throughout the United States history and how this discrimination complicates the American mythology of the open road. We hope you enjoy. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to Roundhouse Crosstalk, a podcast hosted by the California State Railroad Museum. Um, I'm here today with Dr. Mia Bay to talk about their book, uh, Traveling Black, which uh, covers the black experience for uh, transportation mobility throughout the history of the United States. Um, So more broad than we typically cover here, the Railroad Museum, obviously, but the railroad was such a big, important part of uh, mobility for so long that um, it definitely has a connection there. Um, but starting off, so your book argues that an essential part of American identity is wrapped up in this mystique of the open road and of free access to mobility. Mm-hmm. Um, so how did that come to be? How did that symbol of, of free mobility start? And then in what ways does your, your study on uh, Black mobility complicate that symbol?
1: Well, I think the the... The connections between freedom and mobility go really far back in American history. This this country, the sort of European settlement of this country was all about moving, often moving west, and people would seek freedom by moving from one place to another or seek opportunities by moving from one place to another. and, and that that would always continue and, and become important for, it. you know, it's important for jobs, for resources, for finding more land. Um, and it just sort of became part of American identity. And then starting in the 19th century with the transportation revolution, uh, when you have canals and railways and stuff, it becomes really important to commerce and success um, moving around and the, the, and also you begin to get a kind of commercialized travel where Americans can kind of get up and go anywhere.
0: And is there something about transportation? So one of the things we, you talk about in the book is that um, there's a history of segregation in um, transportation and in, in these different experiences pretty much from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's it's a common thing that we see in in every stage of the, the transportation that you talk about. Um, is there something about transportation specifically because it ends up being the site of, of so many of these like civil rights cases and mm-hmm. um, Plessy versus Ferguson, you know, all these things. Is there something about transportation that makes it more prone to developing segregation than than other institutions or, or places?
1: I think there I mean I think there is I, I think that's a combination of sort of when segre- when transportation um develops and just the character of transportation um, especially when it comes to traveling any kind of distance um we we kind of take all forms of transportation for granted now, but of course things like the railroads were this tremendous revolution, stagecoaches, because before that you basically moved places by you know, walking or maybe taking a boat, but you didn't necessarily um, ever find yourself with a lot of strangers on a regular basis traveling somewhere. So from the very beginning, um, transportation put people together who maybe hadn't been sharing the same space previously. And it did it at a time of tremendous social change. The earliest railroads um, and sort of steamships and stage coaches get going in the early 19th century when you've had gradual the gradual abolition of slavery in the North. So you now have a population that includes very recently freed ex-slaves. Um, And the sort of Jim Crow by law segregation in the South comes again during a period uh, not long after emancipation and reconstruction. So it's as um, there's a lot of tensions over race and who can be where um, in this, and then that become really acute in this new form of transportation. I mean, on early stage coaches, there were kind of urban legends about a woman in a veil riding the stage who turned out to be a black woman. So it's all about like contact and proximity with unfamiliar people.
0: It, part of it too potentially is like with these new inventions of mm-hmm. transportation more people are traveling further so then right. it's people like maybe outside your community too that exactly uh, like the fear of the other I guess. The fear
1: way. of the other. Um, they also you know, the earliest forms of transportation are always initially for sort of middle class or elite people just because they cost money. And so, you know, it becomes a really a problem too, if people who do not, are not considered to be like possibly members of this elite are traveling in it, or you also haven't on early stage coaches and steamships and trains, you have conductors and other workers who are like, I do not want to serve black people. That's not what white men do. So it's, it's very fraught in a lot of ways. Um, okay. So then jumping into sort of the,
0: the, the history side of the book and, and kind mm-hmm. of going over that stuff, um, you start the book by looking at a, a time period before the railroad uh, mm-hmm. and you track a lot of the discrimination that we eventually find on the railroad um, to policies and stuff that was happening prior to. Mm-hmm. Um, can you walk us through some of those beginnings
1: and, and what that looked like? Sure. The early discrimination had something to do with some of the class things I was mentioning, the fact that early stage coaches and even steamships, they cost a fair amount of money. So the sort of, and they, they had kind of nice domestic accommodations often, you know, like the stage coaches have curtains and upholstered cushions and the steamships would have drawing rooms. And, um, and this was to cater to a relatively well-to-do traveler. And then if you if the traveler was traveling with servants or someone very poor was traveling, they might be able to buy a half price ticket that would be on the deck of the steamship or on the top of the stagecoach. Most forms of transportation have a bad, bad seat somewhere. That's still true today. <laughs> and you know, these bad seats are where people with less money and less status would end up. And what happens in uh in the Northeast, which is the first place, um, for, for most of these things to operate extensively is on, uh, you know, on routes like New York, Boston, where there are rel- relatively large black populations, you begin to have these, these, um these kind of accommodations are called are eventually on the train called Jim Crow. Um, and before that it's, it's called something, you know, for stage coaches and uh, steamships, it's just like deck passage or outside seating. So then
0: by the time we get to the railroad, Um, Mm -hmm. That's when we get to Plessy versus Ferguson eventually, Mm -hmm. um, which helps set the separate but equal sort of standard uh, that Mm -hmm. eventually leads to to Jim Crow and all that. so can you walk our audience through that core case? I, I feel like we talk like we most of the time where people interact with Plessy versus Ferguson, they just know that little snippet um and they know it was eventually overturning the civil rights movement, but they don't know any of the backstories that go into it.
1: It's true. A lot of people don't necessarily know it's a railroad case because we sort of pair it with Brown and which is an education case. But um yeah, Plessy versus Ferguson is the end result of decades of legal wrangling over what was called the Jim Crow car, the uh, special accommodations that Blacks were asked to ride in on the railroad in in many places. African-Americans actually fought off the Jim Crow cars in the Northeast, where they were initially required as a matter of railroad policy for the most part. Um, But these kind of discrimination came roaring back in the South after emancipation when you began to have large, larger numbers of Blacks traveling by train, more middle-class Blacks occupying um, what were called ladies' cars, these kind of nicer cars, Um, and there was a kind of a move to sort of block off this. This came in the 1880s, which is after Reconstruction, after the attempt to kind of create a sort of more equal racial democracy. It's at a time when leaders in the White South are really trying to restore white supremacy in all sorts of ways. And one of the most basic ways they do this is by passing a series of state laws, state state laws that are called separate car laws that mandate um, that the races must ride in separate cars. Um, and and um, African Americans challenge them. There's no, there often actually aren't sort of real separate cars. So what happens to African Americans in as the separate cars laws first emerge is that sometimes they'll be riding on a train that has a smoking car and a ladies car which is to say one you know one raggedy old car where everyone can smoke and spit um Bit tobacco and and all this stuff in one sort of nicer car with where women where, where women like to ride and can have ch- bring their children and all that so so what happens is that um, blacks are basically beginning to be thrown out of the ladies cars or any kind of any kind of car other than the smoking car and um, they fight it in court and they often win women will sue and say why can't I ride in the ladies car and you know and, and often as not they might win. Um, so, uh, Plessy versus Ferguson is a case that a group of blacks and creoles who are kind of, uh, often a mixed race people in Louisiana chose to get on the books because Louisiana had passed a separate car law in 1890, and they hoped that the Supreme Court would, you know, recognize that this, this, um, law went in went against, Louisiana still had a civil rights law on the books from Reconstruction. They hoped that it would be defeated. They also put up a litigant, Homer Plessy, who was seven-eighths white. So they wanted to sort of raise the question of who it is and who is not Black. Um, but none of this worked. Um, the courts kind of ignored Plessy's race and um, got around any p- possible conflicts, and just kind of, it wasn't, it was a very problematic decision legally, but they decided that this was sort of a natural distinction, and as long as it was, as it it said, famously separate but equal, it was fine that you had separate cars, and that resolved some but not all of the conflicts over Jim Crow segregation on the trains.
0: So I hadn't heard that it was as planned, as as you mentioned here, which makes sense, you know, Oftentimes, these civil rights cases are mm-hmm. planned and they're they're mm-hmm. thought out. Like I'm thinking of um of um I can't think of her name right now. Uh, civil rights. Rosa Parks. Or the Parks. Thank you. Right. Um, mm-hmm. where the story we always get presented as in media is it's the spontaneous thing, but of course it, it it wasn't either. Um, so that's just interesting to see it in Plessy versus Ferguson as well. After Plessy versus Ferguson, as you mentioned that that creates this doctrine of separate but equal. Um, but it doesn't actually solve, as you mentioned in the book, like all these um, issues. Like there are continued fights for um, uh, equal treatment afterwards. Can you talk yeah, that, a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, that was one of the things that really intrigued me because um, people who write about Plessy versus Ferguson or transportation law often kind of, I'm like, Plessy versus Ferguson kind of settles it. Segregation is legal. But Buried in Plessy versus Ferguson is um, a couple of lines in which the court notes that its decision, as far as transportation is concerned, only applies to transportation within the state of Louisiana, because transportation across state lines is under the control of the um, under the control of the Commerce Commission, under the control of the Constitution, is simply not regulated by the Supreme Court. So That was always a sort of loophole in the law um, because, and so you would have black litigants who were challenging it because they were traveling interstate and that would, that would go on for decades and ultimately break, ultimately break down Plessy versus Ferguson when it came to transportation.
0: That's interesting too, because we've heard experiences where, where folks, depending on where they are Mm -hmm. on the line, they had, they're treated differently in different states. Right, right. That's, that's the fight, I guess, is you know, once it's out of a single state, it becomes a different jurisdiction.
1: Yes, and you had, you know, you had these sort of change states where like, you know, as you're going into, you know, Washington was one place where people often were moved to the back of the car. Um, And that would ultimately become a kind of legal issue where a judge would eventually rule that all this moving around was actually going against the constitution's interstate business rule regulations. So
0: sort of speaking on that, another thing you talked about in the book, separate from the travel experience on the railroad itself, Mm -hmm. is that when folks would get to specific cities or places, there would be vastly different sort of like local customs Mm -hmm. uh, to that um, discrimination. Um, And one thing I'm interested about is like, like for example, um, you talked about how on the same route, someone could be denied nearly any accommodation for um, taxi cabs in Memphis um they could go to Little Rock and find a ride fairly easily Mm -hmm. Um, but then in in Tulsa on the same route they would only be able to go in specific taxi cars Mm -hmm. um how was there any like Green Book or anything to help like help folks navigate those local customs or was it just sort of you
1: get to a new space and you figure it out on your own? I mean, it was it was so difficult um, beyond the green book. This this book that people sort of read for driving, but things like navigating the railroads. Um, the problem was that it was it was really hard to know. I mean, people would ex- do a lot of talking to each other. Like if you were you know, if you were going to Memphis, you might call someone up who had been there and kind of discuss all the specifics of of like how you know what would happen when you get there. There were also things that. Um, Black people learn to do to like figure out how to navigate a particular town like so when you got off the train you might ask the porters where was the black neighborhood did the cabs take black people or if you're walking through and you you're you're walking through a neighborhood you might ask uh, the mailman especially if they were black mailmen like where could you eat where could you sleep where was a hotel Musicians exchanged information, like one of the antecedents to the Green Book was a list that was simply passed around by musicians who worked through the And I think a guy at Billboard magazine kept it. So, but but the sort of level of micro detail of kind of knowing, you know, like where you'd be able to get a cab and where you'd not be able to get a cab, which also changed sometimes, was sort of hard to keep track of. So that's one of the big, black travelers can com- complain like you it's not a system you can work with or kind of say okay well I'm going to follow the rules because the rules are different every place
0: and um, something else you work talks about is that sometimes patronizing black owned uh, businesses would be one way to potentially avoid some of the um, the problems um, can you talk to our audience a little bit about the benefits of doing that and then what sort of limitations there were to um, trying to do that
1: yeah, I mean sometimes they were you know they were absolutely the your sort of best possible scenario especially in the south you really needed to find a uh if you were going to stay in a commercial establishment you needed to find a colored hotel or, or some kind of um some kind of place to stay likewise for dining and so forth. Um but there were the, the there were a couple of drawbacks. Um there weren't enough of them like literally if you Counted the number of black hotels versus like the number of travelers. There weren't enough of them. Um, let me just close my door on the dog. Um, and and they were sort of undercapitalized and were often not necessarily all that nice. Um, people did a lot of staying with friends or friends of friends or relatives, um, um, which also probably probably is one of the reasons why there weren't enough black establishments I mean I I guess the good side is that they you know they were they did sort of provide blacks with business opportunities but it it wasn't a hugely successful field
0: so to what extent is this a legal system um and what to what extent is this informal um like,
1: it's an, yeah. it's an incredibly complicated blend. I mean, in, in in the north, it's almost purely informal. In fact, there are a number of northern states that have civil rights laws that should not, you know, make it make it impossible. But um, you know, you I don't there were like black journalists who would write around to northern hotels and you know get things like you wouldn't be comfortable here, you know, like or things like that. So so that was informal, and that applied in the North to things like hotels and restaurants and so forth. In the South, there was there was a lot of actual law around the segregation of transportation and eating and but um and sometimes even cabs. But there was also a certain amount of just informal stuff. Um, like West Virginia, for instance, was segregated, but it actually never passed very many segregation laws it was almost it was mostly informal and um, other places you know had weird little habits that people would find out about like blacks were supposed to get off the streetcar on one side and whites on the other which were I sure weren't laws they were just customs (laughs) but like (laughs) you know um, they were followed or if you didn't follow them you could get in trouble
0: um okay so one thing that's really interesting is we have a shift from public transportation being used um, mm-hmm. exclusively like so with the railroad if you mm-hmm. want to get long distance from point a to point b mm-hmm. you have to do it with other people and except for the mm-hmm. very very wealthy with their own private rail cars but even then you know you're on a train with other folks even mm-hmm. if your car is is mm-hmm. uh, just you um but with a with an automobile now you're not traveling with other people it's it's usually just your household Mm -hmm. Um, how did that complicate advances within racial discrimination policies? And in what ways has this been sort of a blessing and a curse?
1: Uh, Yeah, it was definitely a blessing and a curse. Um, Initially, African-Americans really were very excited about automobiles. They seemed to offer a kind of freedom and privacy that they had never experienced. Um, But as automobiles become... Really useful for travel, which is not until you have like you know, um, you know, a lot of roads. Um, They also around automobiles developed, but we still have, which sociologists call a system of automobility, which is like service stations, motels, um, everything you you know, roadside restaurants, everything you need to actually travel. And um, those you know within the system of automobility, blacks once again encounter segregation and have trouble finding places to stay, finding places to eat, and ironically enough, even sometimes have trouble finding places where they could buy gas Mm. Um, because this, you know, the system of automobility sort of catered to this white um, traveler often really seeking out, like with the gas stations, the issue was they really were catering to women. Gas had prior to gas stations been bought in hardware stores and with gas stations, you're trying to make sort of new class of women drivers feel comfortable. And part of this was sort of making it a sort of warm domestic space where someone would serve you and all of that didn't mean they necessarily wanted Black customers. So so African-Americans began to find that rather than sort of being able to get in their car and not experience segregation, they might have trouble finding a place to stop and eat a place to stop and stay or even a place to pump gas.
0: Yeah, well, that, that's really interesting because you you talked about how the gas stations catering to, um, you know, the domestic sphere having having sort of a, a woman-focused approach.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and that seems to connect with the, when we we're talking about Plessy versus Ferguson, there seems to be this connection between racial discrimination and like the gendered aspects of travel. Um, is that a connection we see quite a bit?
1: I think so. I mean, I think it is partially about how um, part of what travel providers have been trying to provide for people literally through the whole system, the whole history of commercial carriers is, you know, a home away from home, a comfortable space, a space where you can relax, fall asleep, feel taken care of. Um, And that has often involved, you know, a sort of um a, a domestic space you know that's comfortable for women that that you know um and and then there also there's always been this need to actually appeal i mean they had trouble getting women to ride the railroad initially trains were dirty dangerous filled with you know filled with soot and stuff so they always had to kind of do a little extra to get women in on it um and they're often catering to a kind of middle-class audience um, and they're sort of picturing a sort of middle-class domestic space where white women will feel comfortable.
0: Um, Okay. And then your book sort of uh, wraps up with um, discussion of, uh, of airline travel. Uh, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: So so what was the history of sort of racial segregation there and and how did that impact things?
1: Um, That was super interesting. I I initially, you know, it's, it's, it was never legal and never kind of publicly discussed. But when I really looked into it, I began to find forms of segregation and sort of at almost every juncture in the history of flying. I mean, early on, Blacks were often excluded. Black When people kind of flew themselves as opposed to flying commercial, <laughs> Blacks were often excluded from airfields and air instruction things, and they weren't allowed to join the Air Force. And there was kind of this idea that, um, flying was this technocratic thing that only white uh, white white people could do, uh, usually white men. Um, and then, as you began to get commercial services, um, you also had a time, a brief period where blacks weren't allowed, sometimes weren't allowed on planes. Um, the courts made it clear pretty fast that airlines are, in fact, what are known what is known as common carriers. You know, a vehicle where you sell a ticket and have to take people, but. Um, but after that, they began to do things, they began to do things like put African Americans in special seats. Um, early on, when planes had propellers in the front, that seat was often this kind of single seat in the front, which was, like I say, every 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 vehicle has a bat seat. And the single seat next to the propeller was not a seat that most people wanted to sit in. It was very, very loud and sometimes involved sparks. Um, so, African-Americans would find themselves in this seat. Later, when the design of planes changed, um, it, it would became more of just uh, stewardesses would try to assign any black travelers on a given plane. And there usually weren't that many to a special row um, where they were separate from um, the people on the, on the plane. And there also became um, uh segregation on the ground there was segregation in the airports in the south um and segregated restrooms segregated waiting rooms um and of course the segregation and things like cabs extended to the airports where it was quite significant because airports are kind of usually a good distance from the town
0: (laughs) yeah that's that's always the difference between like your railroad station the airport Um, for whatever reason, the railroad is usually the center of the town versus the Mm -hmm. airport. So the the thing you, maybe you even have to take a train to get there, depending on um, how good transport No,
1: And that was what drove Black travelers crazy, because they would, you know, splurge on an airline ticket, they'd be thrilled to not have to experience segregation on their trip, and then they'd get to the airport and they would be able to get from the airport to their destination because there were no Black cabs.
0: All right, so one of the things that uh, has come up a lot in discussing um, sort of rail travel broadly, um, I know I, I, it used to be more popular to refer to um, it this way, but but people have long called American railroad cars Republican in the sense of um, everybody's together all the time. And it's sort of this space where um, everybody intermingles, whether you're a farmer, you're a miner, you're a politician, whatever it is, you're in a space with somebody completely different next to you. Mm. Um, to what extent is that sort of a fair assessment?
1: Um, it is It is complicated because, I mean, at the time that Americans are, you know, the American railroad system is developing, the, the British Railroad system has, and I think it probably still has, it has like a system of like first class, second class, third class, fourth class. Um, and Americans re- sort of reject that model. There are often better classes than others, like the ladies' cars are, are are better than um, which are pretty common in the in the early 19th century and beyond, um, are nicer. Sometimes they cost more, sometimes they don't. Um and the, and that instead of having classes, you know, the the um some of the early really bad tickets on like steam coaches stage coaches and even railroads are are they're half fair tickets so there's no there's no it's i think it is a rejection of the idea of class um but it also does mean that there's you know that there's there's less price points um for sure and but but it, it there's it's not that there are none. Um and except that what will happen with segregation is in the South anyway, when they make when they you know, after Plessy versus Ferguson, when it's clear segregation is here here to stay they actually get rid of any kind of second class ticket and you just have colored car and white car only. So there is a kind of white republicanism in the South that kind of goes with the American idea that the rail- railroad shouldn't have classes.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. So was part of that just because it eliminates the problem of like, well, if, if there is um, a Black person that has the money for a first class car, we don't want to We don't don't want to have to be able to provide The the
1: railroads, I mean, they're big, I mean, the railroads actually opposed segregation initially because they were afraid that they would have to provide double everything. And, you know, that got around that.
0: So something else your book talks about is um, that one of the results of all these discriminational policies and just sort of this informal network that's really hard to navigate is that for many folks, they just sort of didn't navigate it. They mm-hmm. it was, travel was not nearly as popular within um, black communities as it was um, outside of it. Um, can you talk a little bit about that sort of, um, I guess the difference in why uh, black people would be traveling typically versus um, a mm-hmm. white traveler?
1: Yeah, I mean, one, one reason why people hadn't written all had, have not written all that extensively on black travel is it's always been kind of known that there's less Black recreational travel, but I would the first thing I emphasize is this is, you know, the 20th century is the era of the Great Migration, um, and there's a lot of black travelers, but they're o- often traveling for work or traveling to uh, visit relatives in the South. You know, by the time you get to the World War One era, you have a lot of people whose families are distributed across the U.S. Um, but just the purely recreational travel um, is. To this day, um, like statistically less extensive among African Americans, and it had to do with both, you know, basic economic differences—blacks being a historically um, less affluent population—but also the ways in which, you know, travel was was difficult and and you know um and, and certain, and um, there were plenty of blacks you know who really wanted to avoid segregation and didn't want you wanted to have as little to do with it as possible and one one of the ways to avoid it was to avoid traveling extensively um and to really do the only the only kind of traveling you do is around kind of visiting family and stuff so it, it might be a vacation but you're you're not using you know you're not trying to use a hotel or anything like that um
0: so another thing your book talks about is that the fight for mobility and against this sort of transportation segregation um, fell largely outside of um, organizational history about the civil rights movement. Um, can you talk a little bit about what made mobility more of a grassroots fight? We obviously talked about with Plessy versus Ferguson, and it was still this planned thing. Uh, right. But but mobility seems to be more grassroots than um, sort of the educational fight in Brown v. Board.
1: Yeah, I mean I I think it was partially because especially the kind of interstate cases, people often encountered the problem that got them to the courts on a very sort of individual basis. Like, you know, a lot of the a lot of the lawsuits that lead to Plessy versus Ferguson are not organized by anyone. They they happen when a black woman is thrown out of the lady's car. Um and uh the sort of Travel as an issue to organize around is a little, is a little sort of incoherent in terms of how to do it. Um, it's often seen by civil rights organizations as maybe not the most urgent of all issues, like when you get the organization of the NAAC in 1909 um the NAACP for much of its history has a limited amount of resources and a lot of really pressing problems to face so they they choose things like anti lynching um you know preventing people from being put to death in various ways over things like worrying about segregation um during right before the depression era they're given a big gift and they're planning to do a kind of thing on travel and education but then the market tanks and their gift is worth a lot less than it used to be. So they drop travel. Um, and but there and the, and there are but there are still cases that occur in the 30s and 40s because there's individual people who are just like, I had this terrible experience and I'm going to litigate. So I think it's 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 travel is on the one hand something that people have such routinely unavoidable bad experiences all, 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 you know, doing that it gets to the courts and becomes a civil rights issue. But on the other hand, it's, it's you know, it's juggling with a lot of other issues and is, you know, it's not, n- not really ever the sort of first thing on the agenda for civil rights organizations. So you know, when you finally get to the civil rights movement, you know, who would have guessed that it's galvanized by a bus boycott in Montgomery, you know, it's you know like uh, after all the you know people have been fighting for anti-lynching fighting for labor fighting for this but travel will sort of produce these results um just about out of the sort of daily humiliation sometimes that imposes on people
0: so what got you interested in the topic of, of mobility specifically when when studying the the black experience
1: well, two things. Um, one was that I wrote a biography of Ida B. Wells, who's a black journalist, who's most well known for her anti-lynching crusade. Um, but what uh, drove her to become an activist when she was quite young, still in her 20s, is she was kicked out of a lady's car on the Tennessee railroads. In the era before you had, um, the era before Plessy versus Ferguson, but when you're beginning to have these kind of informal versions of segregation, um, and um, she had been riding in the ladies' car. She had a sort of short commute to work um, on a train. She had previously traveled by mule. This is how early the re- <laughs> early this kind of transportation was, but now she was riding a, a train, and um, one day when she gets on the train, the conductor tells her she has to move to the smoking car, and she says she does not want to. I mean, there's so many reasons not to move to the smoking car. Every all men smoked back in the 19th century. And also the smoke also referred to the smoke that came from the locomotive. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. it was really kind of uncomfortable. Um, and they carry her off the train and, um, she launches a lawsuit happens again. She launches another suit. Um, she wins in the lower courts, but then is defeated in the Tennessee state Supreme court. Um, and, um, it's just a really interesting case. She's she's defeated, you know, mostly because the court, the court just dismisses mm-hmm. all of her concerns. They say that the smoking, you know, like the even though the smoking car is called the smoking car, there's not really a lot of smoking going on there. You know, like they just <laughs> they bring in some woman who said that she was obnoxious. Says that Wells was obnoxious. It's not clear that the woman was actually on the same train. So she, you know, she loses. um, it's a terrible defeat. She realizes that, you know, that this is a civil right that's not going to survive. and it was just interesting to me. I had not known about the gender aspect of early creation. So that kind of that was my initial point of fascination. But then also around the same time, I was sort of writing that book. Uh, was Hurricane Katrina. And I ended up writing an essay about, you know why everyone who was left behind in the superdome during Hurricane Katrina was black, which kind of got me thinking about modern day transportation inequalities and sort of what a long history they have
0: absolutely. And, and that's a, a great segue because the other thing I want to talk about is um at the at, for rail travel, you know, we always hear that uh, officially discrimination ends in the civil rights mm-hmm. movement. Um, But we talked about so much about how these are a lot of the times informal, non-legal processes um, that don't simply end with the end of of legal segregation. Um, So how does what's the sort of legacy of this topic in in mobility and how does it continue to to show up today?
1: Well, one thing is that I think some of the things that we've talked about sort of domestic space, class breakdowns without class, or you know, still kind of exist. You know, we still have so there's so there's still a fair amount of discrimination in flying. African American travelers report difficulties. You know, accessing first class accommodations on planes. Um, but the more remarkable thing is the way in which uh, the desegregation of trains and railroads has been kind of a pyrrhic victory because it's occurred. It occurs. Um, you know. In the 1960s, at a moment when the United States is moving towards being an intense car culture, and railroads and bus uh, companies are beginning to disappear first slowly and then very quickly. Um we now only the only rail, you know, only rail passenger rail we have now is Amtrak. Um, and we have you know very a lot less bus routes than we used to. So um, so the, you know, the sort of desegregation of them is not as important as it could have been. And on the, on the other hand, you have, um, both blacks and Hispanics somewhat disadvantaged in the field of driving cars. Um, blacks and Hispanics tend to encounter, um, forms of discrimination at almost every stage of sort of buying and owning a car. They pay higher prices for insurance, they often pay higher prices for cars. There's more these are a poor populations, so there's also more carless people. And then of course in recent years you've had police profiling and a lot of sort of violence on the road. So it's not clear that this move towards car culture has been, you know, necessarily good for people of color or like as, and, and, you know, it has, of course, climate problems as well. So it's, it's not, it's not clear things are going in the right direction in terms of ease of ease, easy and affordable mobility. Yeah.
0: And and one thing um, I'm curious about um, when we think of this era, we think of white flight to the suburbs. And uh, Mm -hmm. one of the things that um, we've heard in the past is Um, certain public spaces become privatized. So like uh, Mm -hmm. we come, you know, in the the 50s, there are public pools that um, are in the middle of cities and, um, you know, there is legal segregation at the time. So there are two separate pools, perhaps. And once desegregation occurs, um, they can no longer separate, have separate pools. So they simply Mm -hmm. have no pools or they Mm -hmm. have pools owned, uh, not publicly, I guess. Um, do we, is, is there any evidence that that's a similar, I guess, thing with public transportation that now there's not legal segregation, um, on public transportation. So we're going to get rid of it. We're in the suburbs anyway. So we're outside maybe the, the traditional scope of this public transportation.
1: Yeah. I mean, there's far less commitment to funding public transportation in, in recent years. And some of it has to do with desegregation. Um, um, you know, like like Alabama, for example, where the Montgomery bus boycott took place, it spends plenty of money on building roads and highways, but no money on public transportation, (laughs) you know, so, so there's, so, you know, as, um, you know, as whites moved off public transportation, it became increasingly something that served the relatively, well, the the poor, the people of color, sometimes the elderly, you know, if you, if you, ride a city bus that's often who you will be with the sort of commitment to it and the willingness to spend public dollars on it has really decreased um in ways that is are just manifestly unjust in the sense that we spend an enormous amount of money keeping our roads operating
0: what is there any i guess is there a solution to to any of these problems is it just fund the
1: public transportation more ideally and i know that this would be a problem in california but you know make more use of trains and light rail and you know forms of forms of public transportation i mean we need to do so from a climate point of view but we could also you know do so in ways that would you know you know make society more equal all right well thanks so much for coming on the
0: podcast Um, i'm glad we could sort of like i said we've we've talked about and um, the, the discriminatory experiences on the railroad specifically, but I'm glad we could sort of broaden that a bit um, and talk about its, its history before as well as its continued legacy today. thank you. Thank you for listening to Roundhouse Crosstalk. For more information about Mia Bay's new book, Traveling Black, A Story of Race and Resistance, please see the link in the description. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to subscribe and give us a review wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you again for listening, and we'll see you next time.